<clears throat> come to the moment of beginning the intensive part of the retreat. I want to first thank you all for the tremendous amount of work that you've done. It feels like we've created quite a wonderful space here. We can now embark upon this intensive journey. <clears throat> Traditionally, we begin retreats by taking refuge. The act of taking refuge is a way of aligning ourselves with a certain vision of things. It's a way of creating a context of safety and ease and expansiveness in our practice. The first jewel, as it's called, that we take refuge in is the Buddha himself. We take refuge in the Buddha first just as a sense of offering respect to the historical Buddha who has offered to us a path. Rather than having some kind of spiritual urgency and a real burning in one's heart to understand, but no sense of how to go about that, we have the incredible opportunity of having a clearly described and delineated path. So it is an act of paying respect. Even more profoundly, when we say we take refuge in the Buddha, it's a sense almost of cherishing what Buddha mind is, appreciating how the Buddha saw the world as far as we can understand it. One of the most powerful, for me, statements of the Buddha is when he said, I teach one thing and one thing only, and that is suffering and the end of suffering. We'll talk a lot about that throughout the course of the retreat in terms of cutting through surface appearances and finding hidden realities and coming to liberation from pain. But tonight, in terms of this, I don't even necessarily mean that so much, but rather a way of seeing the world so that there's an understanding that certain states and certain aspects of the mind, certain habits, certain ways of being create suffering, and others create the end of suffering. We see certain states that create suffering in that Buddha mind. There's no condemnation and there's no hatred and there's no shame, there's no guilt, there's no blame, but rather there is an understanding. This state creates suffering and so there's compassion. There's not even a sense of this is me or this is you experiencing that state, but seeing it as an arising that has that particular nature creates pain, and so there's compassion. There's certain other states, certain ways of being, things that come up in the mind, certain habits that lead to the end of suffering. This is the ground for the arisal of rejoicing, of feeling great joy both for oneself and for others. 
It's not a question of seeing the states and feeling pride or conceit. But rather that sense of, of great happiness, great delight. This is Buddha mind. Not to be judging in the sense of condemning and clinging, but to see the world with compassion and rejoicing, to see one's own experience and experience outside of oneself in just that way. This is what we take refuge in, is this perspective. Because if we can bring that into our meditation practice for this time, we'll be bringing a great gift to ourselves. To see suffering and the end of suffering. We also take refuge in the Buddha as he symbolizes what it means to be a completely integrated being. And this is also something that I have always found very personally inspiring. When I think about my life or the lives of people that I know, very often our lives are broken up into little pieces where there's some sense of fragmentation. We feel very together and wise and compassionate when we're all alone. But as soon as we are with other people, there's difficulty and there's tension and there's confusion or there's fear. Or we feel great when we're with other people. And we can't quite feel that when we're alone. You know, there's tremendous emptiness or wistfulness or incompletion when we're alone. Or we feel like our work, our careers are are quite together and bring us a lot of fulfillment. But our family life is in deep trouble. Or something. You know, there's some sense of things not being whole, not cohering. As the Buddha symbolizes a being whose life was all of one piece. It wasn't this sense of he was one type of person when he was alone and another type when he was teaching. His life was all of one piece with certain qualities and attributes supporting him, expressing through him no matter what he was doing. And we take refuge in this possibility for ourselves. And finally we take refuge in the Buddha because his awakening expresses or manifests the highest potential of which we ourselves are capable of. We don't point to him as someone who had an experience in a faraway place at a long ago time that we can think about respectfully but never experience ourselves, because we can. We have that potential for awakening as human beings. And the freedom that he defines is the highest possible sense of freedom. For so many beings in this world, there is so much oppression of one type or another in their lives that necessarily their sense of freedom is just taking the next step to be free to choose where they're going to live, or the kind of job they're going to have, or who they're going to marry. 
You know, for many beings in the world, this is the situation. It was very powerful for us just so recently being in the Soviet Union, where freedom now means that you can read certain books or certain pieces of art can be exhibited. Whereas just a few years ago, for exhibiting those very same pieces of art, people were put in jail. There are many different ways that freedom can be defined. The Buddha, as a human being, is an expression of the very heart of freedom. So that there's complete liberation of mind from oppressive and defiling factors. It's a kind of freedom that's not bound by time and space and change. And so it is the deepest sense of freedom possible. This is what he exemplifies. This is what is available to us. And this is what we affirm by taking refuge. The second refuge that we take is in the Dhamma, which can be defined as the teachings of the Buddha, more specifically as the truth of how things are, the laws of nature, the nature of things. It also has a definition, which is quite interesting, of that which supports us, that which sustains us or upholds us. This is the Dhamma. It's the truth of things as they actually are. In this practice, what we come to understand is that the momentary truth of how things are, in one breath, one step, this momentary truth is our vehicle to ultimate truth or absolute truth. And so we take refuge in the Dhamma of things just as they are, our actual experience, being able to use our experience as it arises, as this vehicle. Even without the Buddha, the Dhamma, the truth is, and so it is our most profound refuge. We can realize the truth, each one of us, through the power, the the growing and developing power of our own minds as individuals. This comes about through personal effort. Many times, because of different kinds of cultural associations we have with the word effort, people hear that and there's a certain sense of a burden, you know, like it's straining and very difficult things. But actually, the sense of realizing the truth through personal effort is tremendously liberating because what it means is that it is available to all of us. It is not something that only happens in certain extreme and dire situations to other people. It can happen for each of us through the power of this effort. We realize the Dhamma, the truth. And so it's a great blessing, actually. And we take refuge in this understanding that the Dhamma or the truth can be our own. 
we can realize it for ourselves. And so it truly becomes our own. The third refuge that we take is refuge in the Sangha. The word Sangha here has many different meanings. Traditionally, it has two meanings. The first of these is that of the ordained Sangha. It's the monks and the nuns throughout the history of the Buddhist teaching who have had the role of preserving the teaching. They have preserved a body of knowledge so that when we sit down here in Barry, Massachusetts, 2,500 years after the Buddha, there's a connection. The process that we go through here, this process of purification, isn't something that we made up, you know, to, to be able to hold this event. It is a very ancient teaching that has been preserved throughout all of these centuries, primarily as the responsibility of the ordained Sangha. And so as an act of respect towards this, we take refuge. Sangha also has the meaning of those who have established themselves in the Dhamma, in the truth, to the point where their faith does not waver. You know, when we experience something for ourselves, there's something so undeniable about that. We may come into a lot of different situations where challenges are brought forth or, um, you know, that sense of faith is tested in some way. But it's very different when we have seen something for ourselves. And so the faith is really our own. It's not because we read about it somewhere and it sounded really remarkable or we aspire to it someday. But because of our own experience of the truth, that, that faith is so profound and it's so unwavering that it is like a beacon, that sense of conviction. Because of the sense of self-witness truth and the power of that, we take refuge in the Sangha. That means we take refuge in this possibility for ourselves of becoming so grounded and trusting of our own experience of the truth that we can have that kind of conviction. Then there's a certain contemporary sense of the word, which is the community of people that walk upon this path together. And this also has a great power. It's realizing that as we sit and as we walk and as we learn and as we struggle and as we enjoy all of the various things, no one of us is really all alone. That in a very great sense, we are doing this all together as a community. That we are connected through this lineage of all the beings who have practiced in this way since the time of the Buddha. We're all connected to one another as we do this retreat as a community. And we are all connected 
to the practice and all who will ever do this practice. So in the present, as we share this time, through the past and through the future, we form a community. This is our our final refuge. We take these three refuges, the Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha, in the beginning of the retreat, so that it marks the transition. It's like going to a foreign country. And this is the point of entry. These form our security. They inform our understanding. And it is also something to recollect throughout the course of the retreat that this has provided the the cradle, the context within which we're going to work. Steve is going to speak for a little bit now about the precepts, and then we will formally begin. Taking refuge at the beginning of a retreat, and as we will often do over the course of the retreat in repeating them, is a very powerful commitment of the mind toward the practice, directing the mind and heart toward the practice. It's like opening the doors, the mental doors, to to deepening the practice. Taking precepts, on the other hand, is a quality of beautifying the mind, making the practice, actually making the practice both possible and and beautiful. Generally, the precepts in Buddhism involve the, the basic five precepts of abstaining from killing, taking what is not given, that is stealing, sexual misconduct, wrong speech or lying, and intoxicants that cloud the mind. The effect of taking the precepts, that is, actually innerly and verbally committing oneself to these precepts, has several very important beneficial effects on our practice. First of all, it it simplifies our lives here as a community living in such uh, close and intimate quarters as we do, and the effect we have walk, sitting each, next to each other and walking and eating together, living together as we do, it's very intense. And to take these precepts creates this atmosphere of trust and the feeling of safety. 
And in that way, it simplifies our lives because we're not so concerned about how other people are affecting us. Through the commitment to the precepts, we again and again are reminded how we ourselves and others towards us are committed to creating this atmosphere. So this atmosphere of um, safety and support. Secondly, it provides for us uh, a unique kind of protection. When our minds aren't so occupied with regret and remorse out of things that we may have done to cause harm, to cause pain, either to ourselves or to other beings, it creates this power of protection. Through this protection, the mind begins to feel at ease, at rest, or calm, which is the basis, the beginning, for insight to develop. And it also brings about a harmonizing effect, both in the mind and the body, that we feel within ourselves and we feel without, around us. Because we know that everyone is, is aiming their own lives around this, this quality. They want to feel protection and they want to give protection. It's a gift of fearlessness that we offer each other. Simplifying our lives, providing protection. As the first and most basic step of practice, it actually brings about a clarity of mind. When the precepts are being fully observed, it is synonymous with a quiet mind because the mind isn't agitated. The mind isn't scattered. It's not worrying and fretting about what we may have done or how people are affecting us. It just comes again and again back to the feeling of the simplicity and the protection. So this provides a clarity of mind. you'll see that as, as your practice, as the mind gets quiet and the practice deepens, you begin to get in touch from a very deep level, a very deep feeling level of the interconnectedness of all of us, of all beings. And from that direct experience of the interconnectedness, we see for ourselves that We don't wish to be harmed, and we don't wish to harm. Just feeling the oneness of living beings. It's born of understanding. It's born of knowing this interconnectedness. Not of inventing it, or thinking it, or imagining it, or because it's spoken about. But it comes from the quiet mind. We simplify our lives, we protect the atmosphere, The mind gets clear, and we just start to see the nature of things. The beauty of this, uh, this deep seeing, of this understanding, 
is that it ripples out into our normal everyday lives. It's a gift that we take back with us into our routine, wherever we live and whatever we do, our relationships and our work. It's said that uh, to take the refuges and the precepts and to repeat them, we may not be doing them daily, but perhaps several times a week, is itself a very strong, empowering factor to deepen practice, to deepen our understanding, because it involves a, a genuine commitment of mind an act of consciousness, pulling into into being our own intelligence, volition, and our emotions, all aiming toward uh, the path of freedom. So every time it's taken, and perhaps over the course of the retreat, you'll feel its, its deepening effect, It's not simply ceremony. It's not just an act from tradition. It's really meaningful. As the Tibetan abbot last night was speaking about, it has a very powerful thought-transforming effect on practice. As we'll be talking about over the course of the retreat, the word sila is usually translated as morality. It means the harmonizing effect. It means to bring our lives in accord with our highest aim. Just looking at the five precepts, to abstain from killing, isn't just an abstinence, an act of abstinence. It's the commitment to the opposite. The aim, the wish to protect life, not to destroy it, and to live our lives that way. Not stealing isn't just an act of abstinence. It is the commitment to respect of other people's property, and even further, a commitment to simplicity contentment with what we have, since often stealing is born out of greed. Sexual misconduct, the intention of mind not to interfere with the commitments and responsibilities of others' relationships, of their families. Not lying. Also not just the abstinence, but a deep commitment to align our lives with our deepest aspiration is not our deepest aspiration to know the truth, to see the truth, to experience the truth. If we practice right speech, we practice not slandering, but rather unifying kinds of speech and soft 
connected speech rather than harsh speech, speech that invites understanding. It is aiming, aligning the entire mind-body process to the path of liberation, to the highest kind of truth. And the idea, the purpose behind not taking substances that intoxicate the mind, written out in the Pali, the the breakdown is that uh, we will abstain from taking things that create cloudiness in the mind, heedlessness. So that implies a commitment to clarity. It's really beautiful as the, the feeling deepens in us what the precepts really are because they've, they become less and less rules of conduct and more and more the feeling inside of an inner virtue that's expressed naturally through our actions, through our speech. As wisdom deepens. So not to think of precepts as a kind of constraint or commandment. They're more like psychological stepping stones, guidelines that invite clarity of mind, invite stillness, bring automatically a coolness to the mind and heart. So I want to explain a little bit, and we'll have some sheets printed up for you to explain the Pali and the translation, the English translation next to it, so you know what we're saying. We begin by taking homage uh, in the, the Blessed One, the Buddha, Namo Tassa Bhagavato Arahato Sama Sambuddhasa. We do that three times. It's a way of paying respect, veneration to the founder or the rediscoverer of this teaching. Then we go through the precepts three times. Buddham, Sarnam, Gachami. Buddham, the Buddha. Sarnam, refuge, that place of safety or sanctuary. Gachami, to go to. And Dhamma, Dhammam, the same thing, to to that um, place of safety, the truth itself, the path to it, uh, the nature of things, to the Sangha, the, the community, the support system that's helping to provide that sense of safety, that feeling of uh, sanctuary. Let me go through the precepts. What I'd like to do tonight is offer eight precepts instead of just the five. And when we get to the five, I'll let you know. Um, right from the beginning, since some of you are quite familiar with the eight precepts, like to offer the opportunity to do this. The, the other three precepts are abstaining from eating afternoon, uh, which is the main one. The, the seventh one is uh, to abstain from dancing and singing, music, entertainment, and beautifying oneself with jewelry, cosmetics, and so forth. And the eighth is to abstain from high, luxurious beds and seats, which none of us have here, so that won't be a problem. The real 
purpose, an idea of taking eight precepts, especially in a retreat, is that it it has the ability to intensify and empower the practice. I'd really like to stress that it is something that you really need to look inside and decide if you want to experiment. You could play with it by trying it for a day or a few days or a week or a month. Some people aren't suited for it, uh, not suited to not eat afternoon. Uh, by health needs or just the body temperament, it's actually detrimental to the practice of some. For others, it can be extremely helpful. And each of you has to determine that for yourself and not in any way feel obligated. It's a willing and voluntary way to perhaps deepen the practice. Just not having to deal or think about eating, you know, for however many hours, 18 hours or so between noon and the next day. Not eating after 12 means essentially no solid foods, no milk, tea, and coffee. Uh, What it leaves is certain kinds of strained juices and lemon water and things like that, which would be left out on the, uh, the tables for you to partake in. We can explain this more in detail, and there will be a sign-up list on the board if you're interested. I'll repeat the Pali word, or words, and please to repeat after me. Namo tasa Bhagavato Arahato Samma Sambuddhasa Namo tasa Bhagavato Arahato Samma Sambuddhasa Namo tasa Bhagavato Arahato Samma Sambuddhasa Buddham Saranangachami Dhammam Saranangachami Sangang Saranang Gachami Dutiampi Buddham Saranang Gachami Dutiampi Dhammam Saranang Gachami Dutiampi Sangang Saranang Gachami Tatiampi Buddham Saranang Gachami Tatiampi 
Satyampi Dhammam Saranangha Chami Satyampi Dhammam Saranangha Chami Satyampi Sangham Saranangha Chami Satyampi Sangham Saranangha Chami Panati Pata Vairamani Sikapadang Samadhyami Adinadana Vairamani Sikapadang Samadhyami Abrahmacharya Vairamani Sika Padang Samadhyami Musawada Vairamani Sika Padam Samadhyami Sura Mereya Majapamadatana Vairamani Sikaparang Samadhyami That's the first five. These are the next three, six, seven, and eight. Vikala Bojana Vairamani Sikaparang Samadhyami Natcha Gita Vadita Visukadasana Malaganda Vilepana Dharana Mandana Vibhusanatana Vairamani Sikaparam Samadhyami Uchasayana Mahasayana Vairamani Sikapadam Samadhyami Idame Silam Everyone can say this Magapalanyana Sa Pachayo Otu. At last is, may this, my sila, contribute to the attainment of the highest liberation, the highest truth. Let's sit together for a while. Does anyone have any questions regarding, in particular, the 
the eight precepts. We're going to regard the noon meal as just when it's served. So after the noon meal will be the period of abstention. I think there will be some juices provided in the evening uh, and herbal teas are allowable. How else? Lemon water. They'll be provided. I wonder why we didn't take the precepts and the refuges in English as well. I mean, Pali is really beautiful, but Right. We're having these sheets published both in Pali and English so you can do the translating or get a feel for the English in yourself. It's actually quite a bit more powerful to do it in the Pali since that's how it's been transmitted for 2,500 years. And just to do it in English, you may have your own feeling and want to put it in your own words to make sense of it, as many people, many of us do. Okay, this is the formal beginning of the retreat. It can be a wonderfully important time, just in respect of our time and commitment to be here. Please take care and use the moments wisely. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.